0: Christian, you are safe in grace and safe at grace. Christian, you are safe in Christ and safe at this church. When you are united to Christ by faith, you are safe in his grace forever. You live and abide in his grace. Perpetual favor and unabated delight. And that then affects how you live with your church family. Because you are safe in grace, you are safe here at Grace Baptist Church. Safe to confess your sins, to confess your struggles, to confess your fears. So it's our security in Christ that reinforces our security and our freedom and our honesty with our church family. We are safe in Christ, in the gospel, and we are safe with one another in gospel community. And that's what David will show us today from Psalm 26. So turn there in your Bibles, and I'm going to show you where I'm getting all of that. Psalm 26, uh, when you see just... As a reminder, when you see Lord in the Old Testament, all capital letters, it's the English translators letting us know that this is God's covenant name in Hebrew, Yahweh. And so I'm going to say Yahweh when I read the Hebrew text. So Psalm 26, look at verse 1. Hear the word of Yahweh. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. Prove me, O Yahweh, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So... Here's the context. David is being slandered by his enemies. People are saying things about him on Twitter that are not true. And so David goes to Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and it's as if he rips open his chest and asks the Lord to do heart surgery on him, to look inside, to probe, to examine him, to see if there is any wickedness in him, to see if there is any truth to what these people are saying about him on social media. So David prays, vindicate me, prove me, try me, test my heart and mind. The Hebrew word for heart, lave, uh, refers to the will and the affections. And interestingly, the Hebrew word that is translated here as mind in Hebrew is actually kidneys. It's the word kilyah. Which is what will happen if you ask God to test you apart from Christ's righteousness. It'll kill you. So it's the kidneys here. David says, Test my heart, test my kidneys. The heart and the kidneys were viewed in ancient Israel and in the ancient Near East as the seat uh, of a, a person's will, their conscience, their moral character. So when David says here, test my kidneys, he's referring to his conscience or his thoughts. He's saying, test my thoughts. Test my inner mind, my heart, my emotions. Test the inner me. David, of course, knows that only Yahweh knows what's going on in his heart, not his enemies. And not even David, really, right? David knows that we can swindle ourselves into thinking that we're not as bad as we think. As Paul Tripp says, one of the most powerful components of spiritual blindness is self-deception. There is no one we swindle more than we swindle ourselves. There is no one we run to defend more than we do ourselves. David knows the propensity of his heart is to swindle himself into thinking that he's not as bad as other people. He's not as sinful as other people. And that's why he prays here that Yahweh would do open heart surgery on him and test his kidneys and point out any blind spots. And David is free to pray what feels like a scary prayer. Test my kidneys, Lord. He can pray that scary prayer because of Yahweh's love for him. I mean, it is a scary prayer to pray, isn't it? I did it last night, and I was like, do you want to do this? (laughs) I was walking on the sidewalk going to our truck, and I said, Lord, test me, vindicate me, try me. Do I want the Lord to do that right now? It can be a scary prayer to pray. Vindicate me, prove me, try me, test my heart and my mind. And it's scary because you have to be open to what the Lord finds when you pray that prayer. But it's not really a scary prayer if you know Yahweh, if you know Jesus. Why? Well, David tells us in verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. David can pray, test my kidneys, because he keeps the steadfast love of Yahweh before his eyes. This is the Hebrew word hesed, which we've seen over and over again in every exposition that we do in the Old Testament. It's God's loyal covenant love. And the best definition, I've told you this before, the best definition of this Hebrew word hesed comes from a children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, where Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author, repeats this refrain throughout this children's Bible. It's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's Chesed. That's God's hesed. It's a love that is centered in the will, meaning God is determined to love us. No matter how bad we are, no matter how far away we run from him, no matter what we do, he cannot be persuaded to stop loving us. He is determined in his will To love us even when we are determined in our wills to run away from him to other lovers. And that's why David can ask Yahweh to open up his heart and point out anything that's wrong. He feels safe to do that with God because he says, I walk in your faithfulness. He doesn't walk in his own faithfulness. He walks and he lives and he feels safe within the sphere of God's faithfulness to him. Within the sphere of God's character. Who he is. And Christian, you can feel safe in that faithfulness too. Because it's God's faithfulness to us that frees us to come clean. Knowing that he won't abandon us when he sees What's really deep down in all of our hearts. And so isn't that freeing? God knows all your deepest, darkest secrets that if we were to put on the screen right here, you would leave and you would never come back again. You might email us and say, I'm switching churches. Why? Because everybody saw my deepest, darkest secrets on the screen. God knows your and my deepest, darkest secrets. He knows your internet history. You've confessed your sins to Google when you search, and God knows that. He knows all your thoughts, and he doesn't run away. What kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? One whose heart is faithful. Faithful. When our hearts are so fickle. This is the hope of the gospel, isn't it? God's faithfulness, God's hesed, God's loving kindness. That's sometimes how that Hebrew word is translated. His loving kindness. Commenting on this verse, Charles Spurgeon said, Dwell, dear reader, upon that celestial word, loving kindness. It has a heavenly savor. Is it not an unmatchable word? Unexcelled, unrivaled. Christian, dwell upon that word, hesed. Dwell upon that word, loving kindness. Dwell upon the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of Jesus. And when you do it, it will free you to confess your sins, the ones you hold close and tight. It will free you to begin walking in the light and walking in freedom. When you dwell upon the loving kindness of God, it can free you to confess your sins to others. And it will empower you to drag your darling sins, kicking and screaming, into the light of the gospel, into the light of God's love and his forgiveness. So let me ask you this morning what darling sins do you need to repent of and to drag kicking and screaming into the light of the love of Jesus? What precious idols do you need to smash this morning? We're scared of these characteristics, but humility and openness are our friends. Humility and openness are our friends, they're not our enemies. The thing that we're afraid to do, which is get real with Jesus and humble ourselves and drag our darling sins kicking and screaming into the light and to confess our sins and to confess our struggles to others, the thing that we're afraid to do, all of that, that's what sets us free. That's how healing comes. That's how revival comes. Do you want more freedom in your life? Do you want to walk just like, "Ah, man, I feel good? Do you want revival? You want to be set free? I do. I want more of that in my life. And I want more of that in this church. Now, I understand. It is a little unnerving to see what's really inside of our hearts, isn't it? It is a little unnerving to pray like David does here. Test me, try me, rip me open me, rip me open, see if you see anything in there that needs to be cleaned out. It is a little unnerving. But we know there's no condemnation in Christ, right? We know we're forgiven. We all know we're sinners with major baggage. It's a level playing field at the cross, so there's no need to be ashamed of what we find inside of our hearts because we're all seriously messed up, and so we can all open up to the real Jesus and to one another. Will it be embarrassing? Yeah. It will be embarrassing, but that's okay. We're being honest with Jesus and honest with one another, and only good things can come from that. Let me say that again. If we're honest with Jesus and we're honest with one another, only good things can come from that. Only good things come when there's confession and repentance. So who wants in this morning? Who wants to be free? How many of you came in today just weighed down with life and condemnation and sin and guilt and shame and you're uptight and you're no fun to be around? Who wants to be free today? Who wants to leave here free today? Just like, whoo, took a load off this morning. Man, church was great. Who wants kidney surgery today? What I'm proposing to you is not heroic. It doesn't require a PhD in theology to experience it. It only requires faith and honesty. Honesty about who you are, who you really are. Honesty about what's in your heart or in your kidneys. Honesty about your darling sins. And then faith in Jesus. That's it. Faith and honesty. So that means that anybody here can get in on it. It doesn't matter how old you are. I love that God makes it so easy for us to come back to him. Don't you? You just look to Jesus Be real. Look to him in faith and just open up. That's it. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no fine print. There's no footnotes. There's no end notes. God makes it so easy for us to return to him, to renew our first love. You look to Jesus. You come on home, and you're welcomed with open arms. You come clean, and you'll be free. Listen, you are safe in grace and safe at grace. This church is a safe place where you can confess all the junk that's in your heart and in your kidneys. This church is a safe place because Jesus is here, and wherever Jesus is, is a safe place. Okay, so David knows that his heart is sinful, but he still tells Yahweh in verse 1, that he walks in integrity. How can that be? How can you say you're sinful and you walk in integrity? Well, when David says that he walks in integrity, he's not saying that he is without sin. As we'll see in a moment, he's at the sanctuary, he's at the tabernacle, offering sacrifices for his sin. He's not being holier than now. Here's what David is doing. He is just contrasting his life of following Yahweh, even though he's just stumbling his way to heaven. He's contrasting his life serving Yahweh with the lies of the evil men who are slandering him and the lives of the men who do not live according to the law of the Lord. David is a sinner. Make no mistake about it. It's why he's at the sanctuary singing this song, offering sacrifices for his sins. David wants God to look into his heart, to look into his kidneys, because God is faithful and loyal to the truth. People are saying things about David that are not true, so he wants the one who is faithful to the truth to examine him. And so David is saying, Rip open my heart. See if what they are saying about me is true, and then vindicate me, Lord. But for the evildoers, perception is reality for them. They think certain things about David that are not true, and so David wants God to examine and vindicate him. To quote Charles Spurgeon again, he said, If there be peace within the soul, The blustering storms of slander which howl around us are of little consideration. When the little bird in my bosom sings a merry song, it is no matter to me if a thousand owls hoot at me from without. Isn't that good? If you hear hear the little bird of the gospel singing in your heart, who cares what all those owls are hooting at about you, right? David wants to be vindicated in Psalm 26 to have peace in his heart so that the blustering storms of slander don't bother him anymore. He wants to hear the sweet sound of the singing of the bird of the gospel, the testimony and reassurance of the Holy Spirit so that the thousand owls that are hooting at him don't faze him anymore. And David can speak of integrity here because... He says he does not, in verse 4, he does not sit with the wicked, meaning he does not walk according to this world's system. His desire is to follow Yahweh. And that's why he can claim his innocence here. He can claim his innocence because David understands brutal, bloody, gory, substitutionary atonement. Look at verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Yahweh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. David loves church. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I love going to church. I love going to corporate worship. And David loves church because at the sanctuary, at the tabernacle, that's where he hears words of forgiveness. It's where he offers sacrifices at the altar. It's where David takes an innocent animal and places his hands on its head and transfers his guilt, transfers his sin to that animal. And it's where That animal dies in his place for his sin. Essentially, it's where David hears the gospel. It's where God's glory dwelt, as David says here. God's glory dwells in the middle of blood. If you don't know this, you need to know this. Church was bloody in the Old Testament, This is the place David loves, and it's where he worshiped, at Bloody Baptist Church. The sanctuary where David worships would have been crowded with people and animals. It would have been very noisy as animals kicked and screamed and squirmed as they were having their throats slit open before they were offered as a sacrifice. And so Psalm 26 wants you to know that the way to the holy God of the Old Testament And the way to the holy God of the New Testament, the way there is gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. Now, some of the Old Testament sacrifices would have given off the smell of a good barbecue. So the aroma of tri-tip, imagine that at worship. Suddenly, you're like, the Old Testament is very interesting. I think I'll study Leviticus. You need a scratch and sniff Bible when you study Leviticus. That would make it a lot more appealing. You just scratch it and you could smell tri-tip when you're in chapter 1. I'm still looking for that scratch and sniff Bible. But imagine that. But there would also be smells that weren't so pleasant because death is smelly. And there would be flies everywhere. And there would be blood. Lots of blood, lots and lots and lots and lots of blood. Worship at the temple was very bloody. It was gruesome. And David says in verse 8, this is where God lives. And it's where David wanted to be. So when David says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, he's probably talking about how the blood of the sacrifice would be poured on the, sprinkled out on the four corners of the altar All of this, of course, is a picture of how God's wrath against sin is appeased through substitutionary atonement as blood is shed and then applied to the four corners of the altar. That means that worship in the Old Testament was a very bloody business and, quite frankly, pretty gross. It was pretty nasty. There was blood everywhere. Listen, we we went yesterday, and we've raised 11 chickens, meat birds, and we went and slaughtered them yesterday. And let me tell you what, if you've never done that, it is a bloody, messy business. My first cut of that chicken's neck, blood went all over me, all over Heather, all over her face and hair. It is a bloody business. That's what worship was like in the Old Testament. Blood everywhere. As Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis says when he describes atonement, he says, Readers should be aghast. The text says atonement is horrible. It is gory. Atonement is never nice, but always gruesome. We need to see this, for we easily fall into the trap of regarding atonement as merely a doctrine a concept, an abstraction to be explained, a bit of theology to be analyzed, or little better to view it as a moving story to be replayed during Passion Week. But we should know better. Surely the Israelite worshiper realized this when he towed a young bull to the tabernacle and had to slit its throat, skin it, cut it in pieces, and wash the insides and legs. It was all mess and gore. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps God's word can shock us back into truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. David wanted to be at church because this is where atonement happened, where he received forgiveness. In other words, it's where he heard the gospel as he gazed upon the beauty of the Lord. And that's what we want for Grace Baptist Church Not all the blood. We don't want blood everywhere. But we sing about the blood. We want blood, the blood of Jesus, all over our lyrics. We want the blood of Jesus all over our sermons. We want the blood of Jesus all over our prayers. We want the blood of Jesus all over our ministries. We want the blood of Jesus all over our discipleship. And we hope you find that here at Grace Bloody Church. We hope you find grace to be a place where you hear good news about Jesus' death, where you can heal if you've been beat up by other churches or if you've been beaten up by religion. We want this church to be green pastures and still waters for you, a place of rest, a place of hope, a place of healing. I hope you get connected with your brothers and sisters here at Grace. So join a Sunday school class if you haven't. Find out about a Bible study. Find a few people that you can begin to open up to. That's what we're aiming for here. We want this church to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures. Anybody out there feel like a failure? Anybody out there think I'm the poster child for discipleship? Yeah, don't raise your hand. A place where they hear good news every single week, where they leave refreshed and excited to live for and share the love of their Savior. So understand this there should be no safer place for wounded and beat up and weary people than the church. The church should be the safest place for the messiest of sinners. The church should be the safest place for those who have been wounded, even those who have been wounded by the church. Churches are meant to be safe places. It's why they call this place a sanctuary. It's why David in the Old Testament and Moses called it a sanctuary. You left everything that was going on in your life out there into the world and you came into the sanctuary where you were safe and you felt secure. And you felt whole. Places of rest, places of green pastures and still waters. It's why David says in verse 8, I love the habitation of your house. That word habitation, the Hebrew word is sometimes translated as refuge. Like in Psalm 71.3 which says, be to me a rock of refuge. Refuge. Nahum even uses it to describe the refuge that lions find in dens as they care for their children. So it's a place of refuge, safety, security. That's what David is saying here. Church for David was safe. It was a refuge because it was there he heard the gospel preached through substitutionary atonement. You are safe where the gospel is preached. Or you should be safe. That's what David is saying here. By being at the sanctuary, in the outside court, offering burnt offerings for his sin, receiving absolution as the priest takes the sacrificial animal and places it on the altar, and as David sees it go up in smoke, David is reminded once again that he is at peace with God. Atonement has been made Perhaps the priest would say to David, Yahweh can't remember your sins. So this is church for David. The gospel is preached through bloody, gross, substitutionary atonement, and David feels safe. That's what church should be like. We honor the name of the Lord when we are a hospital for bruised and broken sinners. We honor the name of Jesus when people come to grace and they leave here and they say, it was like green pastures and still waters at church today. I'm refreshed. I heard the good news. I was told that my sins are forgiven. I feel safe here and now I want to live For him. A church like that honors the Lord. A church like that glorifies Jesus. Some pastors and churches think the whole goal of preaching is to make everyone in the pew feel terrible. While the preacher, you know, has it all together, of course. Some churches and some pastors think if you leave beating yourself up, feeling like you're a terrible Christian, then, man, it was a great service today. You're supposed to leave free, in love with Jesus, and say, I want to share his love with everyone. A church like that glorifies Jesus, not a church that beats the law into people that they leave bloody and bruised. Came in in a good mood today. Worship was great, and then the preacher got up. And man, we're all bleeding and cut and bruised, and now we got to go spend the rest of the week like this. Sunday is supposed to recharge you. You're supposed to be refreshed. Put wind in your sails for the week. And then you make it a couple days and you're like, oh, I'm a lousy disciple. I'm ready for church on Sunday because I need good news. That's the cycle. Ray Ortland said, this is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. And that's what we're aiming for here at Grace." Gospel plus safety plus time. A lot of gospel, a lot of blood, and a safe place. safe place to confess your sins and your struggles and your fears. And then time, time to grow as a Christian, to mature. When the gospel, which is good news for bad people, when it is the main focus of a church what it does it actually creates the gospel culture that that church desperately needs. It creates this environment of freedom when the gospel is the main thing of all of our ministries, it helps create this kind of culture where Jesus is worshipped and adored, where sins are confessed, where relationships are reconciled, where money is no longer king, where the races are, races are united together in unity, and where laughter and dancing is normal. That's right. I said laughter should be normal. We laugh a lot here at Grace. Our elder meetings, we laugh a lot. Our deacon meetings, we laugh a lot. Staff meetings, we laugh a lot. Laughter is a sign of a healthy church. We just don't take ourselves so seriously. We're able to laugh at ourselves. And it's in this kind of gospel environment where people start to feel free and safe enough to admit their real problems. They don't feel pressured to grow at some predetermined pace, Why? Because the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit is trusted. They're banking on the Spirit of God to do what He does best, not what we try to manufacture and make happen. And openness is normal in this kind of environment. Forgiveness is normal. As I said, laughter is normal. I mean, who ever heard of that? A church that's known for its laughter. Now, I know there are some kind of charismatic churches where that's all they do is get together. I'm not talking about we just get together and all we do is laugh, okay? But genuine laughter. Laughter from the gut because you're free in Jesus. That's what we're aiming for. We want grace to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures. We want to be the place you come when you've failed. I hope you feel safe to confess your sins here, to confess your struggles, confess your marriage problems, confess how you were afraid to share the gospel with a coworker, confess how raising children is really, 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 really hard. And not give off the impression that we've got it all together. My children have memorized the Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah, but you should see them in Sunday school class. Free to confess that parenting is hard. Free to confess how you struggle with fear. And anxiety. And depression. And pride. And lust. And worry. We hope you find welcoming arms here people who will pray for you and encourage you. I mean, who wouldn't thrive in an environment that I just described? Who wouldn't grow in a church like that? Who wouldn't be like David and say, I love going to church, I enjoy church. Who wouldn't enjoy Jesus more in an environment like that? We want this church to be a safe place where you can come in on Sunday, all beat up, all worn out, Messy hair, don't care. And say, tell me the gospel story again. I blew it big time this week. And I need to hear it again. Tell me about Jesus one more time. A place where we encourage each other with this good news. Where people feel safe to share their struggles, their concerns. A place, a church, a family that is not afraid to be real with one another. Well, let me remind you again, and we'll jump back into Psalm 26 because we have a few more verses to cover. But you are safe in grace and safe at grace. And when you come in here on Sunday, you just do what David did when he went to the sanctuary. You give thanks. You sing. You talk about God's wondrous deeds. This is the appropriate response to grace. God's people in community declaring his marvelous deeds. And that's exactly what David says next. Look at verse 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord." So David, once again, contrasts the way he lives with these evil men. David, he says, walks in integrity, but these guys are wicked. They take bribes from people, they kill, they murder, they are bloodthirsty. I mean, you can't miss how they like to shed the blood of human beings, and David sheds the blood of animals to cover his sins. There's the contrast. And that's why his feet are on level ground, as he says, because he has peace with God through substitutionary atonement. I love how the Net Bible translates verse 12. It says, I am safe, and among the worshipers I will praise the Lord. So in verse 12, David is just saying, I'm safe in your presence, Lord, safe with your people as we do our gospel thing of praising you and experiencing your grace, experiencing redemption. Bless you, Yahweh. Bless you, bless you, bless you. David is telling us that the appropriate response to Jesus and all that he has done for us through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the appropriate response is to bless him. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to bless the Lord? Have you thought about that? I mean, how can we as sinful people bless a holy God? Because he doesn't need anything from us, does he? He isn't improved by our worship in any way. Our worship doesn't affect God at all. He's God, right? God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything to be happy, and that's humbling. God doesn't need our worship songs in order to be happy. He doesn't need our worship songs at all. Let that humble you. See, we might get up on Sunday mornings excited to sing and worship Jesus, and we should, and that's a good thing, but God doesn't need that from us. It's not like God is feeling down in the dumps on Sunday mornings, and then our worship somehow lifts him up out of the pit of despair. He doesn't need us to sing songs to him. He doesn't need us to give him anything. We saw that in our recent series on the undomesticated attributes of God. God's aseity, if you remember, means that God exists in and of himself from himself. God's aseity means that he is self-existent and self-sufficient. It means that he has life in himself. It means that he has no needs. He is a God of no needs. He doesn't need anything. And that means he doesn't need our worship songs. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our prayers. As A.W. Pink said, God is no gainer even from our worship. It is impossible to bring the Almighty under obligations to the creature. God gains nothing from us. That's called God's aseity. So why do we bless him? Well, we bless him And we worship him because, one, he commands us to, two, because he is worthy, and three, because it completes or fulfills our enjoyment of him. What we praise completes our praise. So you go see the new Top Gun movie, you enjoy it, but then what really completes that praise? When you go to your friend and say, have you seen Top Gun? And then you talk about it, that kind of completes your enjoyment of the movie. That's what we do when we sing to God. We complete our enjoyment of him. But what does it mean to bless the Lord? As David says in verse 12, he says, I will bless the Lord. Answer, to bless the Lord is just to worship him, to marvel, to be in awe of him. Alec Motier says, all worship should be like that, a blessing of Yahweh, a review of his character A review of his grace, a review of his saving power, his providential care, the blood of the sacrifice he has provided and ordained, and the rest he gives to his beloved as he welcomes us into his house and home. So to bless the Lord means that we remember who he is. We take note of his character and his ways, and we respond in wonder and adoration. To bless the Lord simply means to review gratefully who he is, what he has done for us, and then to respond in worship. It's simply to be awestruck that this holy God loves sinners. It is to be flabbergasted that he really is as good as he says he is, and you can believe it, and you can take that to the bank. There's no footnote on that, on the Lord is good. Footnote, well, if you're decent He'll be good. He is good. It's to remember that he cares for us and that he is providentially governing each one of our lives right now. It's to remember that he sent Jesus to live and die for us. And it's to rest in the fact that he welcomes us into his house and home and then we just simply enjoy him. You will bless the Lord today if you leave here saying, it was like green pastures and still waters at church today. I'm refreshed. I heard the good news. I was told that my sins are forgiven. I feel safe here, and now I want to live for him. Well, let me tell you again. Christian, your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. You will bless the Lord today if you really believe and really rest in this truth that you are safe in grace and you are safe here at grace. And you were safe in Christ because what Charles Spurgeon said is true. He loved you without beginning. Before years and centuries and millennium began to be counted, your name was on his heart. Eternal thoughts of love have been in God's bosom toward you. He has loved you without a pause. There never was a minute in which he did not love you. Your name, once engraved upon his hands, has never been erased nor has he ever blotted it out of the book of life. That ought to make you want to stand up and proclaim thanksgiving aloud and tell of his wondrous deeds, or simply to stand and to bless him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. And we worship you. Thank you that you really are good and that your word is true and the gospel is true and that you can't remember our sins, that you forgive us all that you've done for us, Jesus, through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension, your providential care over our lives. We just say thank you and we declare your wonderful deeds this morning. May you be honored and glorified in this church as your blood covers everything Change our hearts, Jesus. Test our kidneys. And may we love you so much that we want to tell other people about you. So give us opportunities this week, Jesus. You're providentially guiding our lives, providentially guide our conversations this week, and give us an opportunity to tell someone about you. We ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand. You know what we should do in response to this? David says that he... Thanks the Lord aloud. So let's stand, and on the count of three, I want us to just yell out, thank you, Jesus. And you can hoop and holler and whatever you want to do, and then the worship team can just kind of kick in whenever. But on the count of three, I want us to just say, thank you, Jesus, and respond like David here. We don't want to read Psalm 26 and be like, I will praise you aloud. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. I mean, David is excited at the temple. He sees an animal dying for his sin, and he's telling everybody, we got to talk about Yahweh. So let's do that. Thank you, Jesus, on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Thank you, Jesus.